Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Bill Nygut. Um, If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I have several uh, genuine passions. And on this show, I get to combine them all. My love for politics, for history, and of course, for theater. And today, we're going to get the opportunity to talk about history in Atlanta as seen through a remarkable musical parade. Last Sunday night, Uh, At the Tony Awards, uh, there were four nominees for Best Revival of a Musical. Uh, They were Sweeney Todd, uh, Lerner and Lowe's Camelot, Into the Woods, and Parade, which was written by Alfred Urey, who is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for uh, his play Driving Miss Daisy, won an Academy Award for the screen adaptation of that picture of that play. And then, and I guess there's a little argument about this, we can talk about it if we need to, is the winner of three American Theater Wing Tony Awards. So those were the nominees. Let's listen to the announcement, and we'll hear just a little of Alfred Urey as he accepts the award on behalf of the company. And the Tony Award goes to Parade. None of us would be here tonight if it wasn't for the trust and generosity of these two creative geniuses, Alfred Urey and Jason Robert Brown. Jason and I were here 25 years ago and won for Parade, and unbelievably, here we are again. And I am very pleased to announce that uh, one of the guests on our show today is Alfred Urey coming to us from his home in New York City. Alfred, congratulations, and it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. I haven't heard that before. Um, Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to play it for you. Absolutely. We're also joined um, by uh, Rabbi... Elvin Sugarman, who is the rabbi emeritus at the temple, and I think it is inarguable to say one of the most beloved figures in the religious community in the Atlanta area. Um, You know, Elvin, we're very informal on this show. You allow everybody to call you by your first name, so I'm going to do that today. But you have deep connections to the Leo Frank case, which we will talk about today. Yes. Um, my father was a contemporary, uh, my late dad, uh, was contemporary of Leo Frank and even visited him in the jail, took his mail from him and, uh, told me a lot of incidents that were happening during the, uh, that horrible time in Atlanta. Um, we're going to be joined as well, uh, by Steve Oney. Uh, Steve Oney has written the definitive book about the Leo Frank case, which I I guess I didn't mention just as we came out of the news, is what uh, Parade tells the story of. And Steve, your book is And the Dead Shall Rise, and it is right now. How many years ago was it published, Steve? 25 years ago, October. And yet, right now, today. Excuse me, 20 years ago, 20 years ago. And right now, today, it is number one on Amazon's list of of, of true crime books. Congratulations, Steve. Maybe some of that is due to uh, Alfred and Parade. I'm, uh, you know, following on uh, Alfred's coattails here, but uh, I'm I'm happy to do so, honored to do so. Um, We're going to really enjoy hearing your uh, 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 talk about the Leo Frank case, because no one has dug into it more deeply than you did and the dead in the dead and the dead shall rise. And of course, it's Friday, which means my partner 
is Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, we've had a lot of really wonderful panels on this show, but I'm not sure we could have a more distinguished group than the people we have today. Not at all. And this is why I'm just going to shut up and listen here. And so let's let's get these guys started here. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do that. Um, Alfred, let's start with you, if I may. I'm going to go back, take you back all the way to the fall of 1997. Dan Hulbert, who at that time was the... Yeah, okay. Well, you were already writing Parade in nursery school. Dan Hulbert, who was at that time the um, theater critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, came to visit you in Toronto. And it was there that you were first working on a draft of the book for what became Parade. You told Dan that your love for Atlanta, quote, runs deep in this production. And then you said to him, I'm writing about noble people, tragic figures. What breaks my heart is that their genuine pain and love for Georgia was manipulated by a few evil men. And of course, the story you tell is of the Jewish businessman from Brooklyn Leo Frank, who ran a pencil factory in Atlanta, was accused and convicted of the murder of 13-year-old Mary Fagan and eventually lynched in Marietta. Why did it occur to you that this might be a story worth telling as a musical, Alfred? Well, it goes back a little bit, Bill. I, uh, like Alvin, my family had deep connections to the Leo Frank case and also took him meals and visited him in jail. It was a small Jewish, German Jewish community, and he was a part of it. And when I was a little boy, nobody would talk about the Leo Frank case. I just knew it was something that if if it got mentioned, people would get up and walk out of the room. And I I was little and nosy, and uh, I kept asking why, why, why. Well, you'll when you get older, we'll talk about it. So as soon as I got old enough. I was able to get on the bus by myself and go to the library downtown. And uh, I looked up the Leo Frank case. And I remember reading that as the sentence was passed, guilty, it was 12 noon and all the bells were ringing in the churches in Atlanta. And I thought, ooh, 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 that's dramatic. So I always thought, ooh, that would be a fodder for something someday. But I was a kid, and I didn't know what. And uh, many years later, I was in the office of my friend Harold Prince, who was a king of the theater for 50 years. And I had just written Ballyhoo, Last Night of Ballyhoo. And he said, well, why exactly were the Atlanta, that Atlanta Jewish community so afraid of being Jewish? And I said, I guess because of the Frank case. He said, you know, I know sort of about that, but tell me. So I told him, he put his glasses on top of his head, and he said, that's a musical. And I thought, oh, okay, (laughs) that's a musical. And I called my mother in Atlanta, and I said, mother, guess what? I'm going to do a musical with Hal Prince. And she said, oh, my God, it's Leo Frank. I don't know how she knew that, (laughs) but she did. And Uh, I'm from there. I, I must um, add that I didn't write about myself. I wrote it with Jason Robert Brown, without whom there would be no parade. So hats off to Jason. Jason, Jason Robert Brown, of course, the uh, composer and lyricist of Parade. And as I said, we'll play a few of his uh, little pieces of his music, which is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Alvin, um, we're, to- we're talking now when, when um, Alfred talks about uh, those days in Atlanta. We're talking about a time frame of around 1910 to 1915. Uh, the anti-Semitism in this town was rampant in those days, and Jews were kind of considered outsiders back then um, and not entirely welcome. Um, talk about that a little bit. Well, the um, in the, the whole... The, the soil of the city uh, that gave rise to uh, Leo Frank's death and lynching. You know, the uh, Atlanta had been the, the 
was becoming semi-industrialized and the, uh, the farm people, rural people came into the city. And uh, what I remember most uh, about that period was the stories of my dad uh, telling me who worked for Montag then, who sold a lot of the products of uh, the National Pencil Company, the National Lead Company. And whenever he would, uh, his account was with my Uncle Sam Sugarman split Atlanta from Monte, and he would bring his uh, sample merchandise in, and they would look at it. This was after uh, 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 the Frank case had become public. And uh, they would reach in and grab these pencils and, and, and other stuff and just rip it in half, throw it on that floor, and then holler at him, get that GD. Jew, S-H, blank, T, out of it. So it was just, it was more than palpable, the uh, the hatred that was uh, uh, filtering up to the top of every uh, of, of so many Atlantans. Steve, um, I want to continue with talking about that time frame, but I think it's important to point out early, and your book certainly uh, explores this, um, as long ago as the Leo Frank case took place, there are still resonances of what happened then that we see around us in Atlanta's Jewish community. Leo Frank was a New York transplant, but his wife, Lucille, her family was an Atlanta family, a prominent Atlanta family. I think I'm right, Alvin, that they were members of the temple, which you eventually became senior <laughs> rabbi of. So, Steve, in many ways, there are people in the Jewish community here to this day who uh, uh, are affected in one way or another about that long ago case, which we'll get into a little more specifically in a couple minutes. Well, the afterlife and ramifications are great. And you're correct, Lucille Selig Frank, that's an old Atlanta family, the Seligs. Um, and I find the most astonishing thing is that upon her death, Lucille's ashes were buried anonymously in Oakland Cemetery uh, without a marker and in a absolutely private ceremony before dawn one day. And to me, that speaks to the wound that the Leo Frank lynching created in Atlanta's Jewish community and that still exists. The other long-term impact is that while it was now nearly 110 years ago, um, the lynching of Leo Frank and the events that led up to it are so similar to what's happening in America today. The uh, rancorous partisan divide, The even down in the Leo Frank case, there was a march on the state capitol. Thousands of people uh, stormed the state capitol and then marched up Peachtree Street to Buckhead, where the governor, John Slayton, who commuted Leo Frank's death sentence, lived. And it's just not all that different from January 6th. Uh, things can get out of hand more quickly than we know. And uh, that's the scary resonance of the Leo Frank case that exists until now. Jim Galloway, you live in Cobb County. Marietta was the center of the heartbeat of the animosity, the hatred toward Leo Frank. It's where he was eventually lynched because that's where Mary Fagan uh, was living with her family uh, at the time. And there were years in Cobb County when that case uh, hovered over the community in a way that was uh, troubling to many. Right, right. Uh, 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 Leo Frank was hanged uh, uh, close to the intersection of U.S. Forty One and and Roswell Street uh, in in Marietta. There's a there's a very plain marker uh, that's that that uh, that's attached to a building that says the same right now. Uh, I, 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 one thing, look, there there are a couple things that I I I, I mean, uh, Steve's book is eight hundred pages long. It is a it is a tome. Uh, I, I will tell you two things that really stand out for me about it is 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 I think uh, uh, is is the, there's a there, there was a line in there where he where he where he talks about the inscription on Leo Frank's grave, uh, semper idem, always thus, and and which says one thing, but the the, the to me one of the most moving things that came out of uh, Steve's book was the fact that he was able to identify. Uh, Leo Frank's lynchers. 
he was able. Yes. He he went through the community and identified these people, and and their sons and daughters are still with us here. And we and we'll talk about that in a in a bit. I'm glad you mentioned that, um, Alfred. I, first of all, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, 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 Jim is right. There is now a state of Georgia historical marker on the site of the lynching, and I want to. I have to say that at the time that um, was unveiled, I was the Southern Director of the Anti-Defamation League and got to preside over the unveiling of the marker showing the spot where Leo Frank was uh, lynched. And I've always felt very proud of the fact that we were able to be part of the process that made that happen. But all right, Alfred, I want to get into the show and in, in doing so, talk about Leo Frank. Leo Frank comes from Brooklyn to Atlanta to run the Atlanta Pencil Factory. And there's a beautiful song that um, tells us how he feels about being in Atlanta. And um, again, Jason Robert Brown wrote the score. And uh, I want to play just a little of what Ben Platt, you have this phenomenal cast for the show, Ben Platt, Michaela Diamond, the music the singing is gorgeous. Here's just a little of what Leo Frank sings as he thinks about a Brooklynite in this strange land of Atlanta. I go to bed at night, hoping when I wake, this will all be gone like it was just a dream. And I'll be home again, back again in Brooklyn. Back with people who look like I do And talk like I do And think like I do But then The sun rises in Atlanta Again These people make me tense I live in fear they'll start a conversation These people make no sense they talk and I just stare and shut my mouth It's like a foreign land I didn't understand that being southern's not just being in the south When I look out on all this, how can I call this home? Alfred uh, Ben Platt singing, uh, How Can I Call This Home? And, and that was really uh, important to this entire case because when the body of Mary Fagan was discovered, in the basement of the a pencil factory, um, because he was an outsider, an alien in the South, uh, it didn't take long before the community started to focus on him as the uh, as the murderer. Yes. Yes, I'm a little gun shy to talk about this w with Steve there because my our show was written unfortunately before Steve's book came out. I wish he had been a little quicker at it because it, <laughs> Me too. It, it, it's valuable. But for this for this production, just about every, everybody involved, and that was probably 60, 70 people in the company on stage and off, read the book. Uh but yes, all all that's true as as far as I know. And when when we wrote the show, I was relying on various books that had come out, but mostly I was relying on what I remembered and was always told. And I'm sure Alvin was remembered and told the same things. Uh, and it was interesting to me as, as a dramatist that this was not a very open, friendly, charming man. This was a serious young businessman. Uh, he wasn't very good at expressing himself, but he was smart and he was doing a good job. And suddenly this nightmare happened to this man and he didn't know why. But by the way, uh, Alfred, I was really thrilled that uh, your uh, director, Michael Arden, who won a Tony Award the other night for Best Direction, um, he opened at the very beginning, we see a projection on the screen of that very historical marker that uh, we talked about a minute ago. That made me feel kind of proud, too. Steve, uh, weigh in on uh, this. On, on... Go ahead, Alfred. Oh, Michael came down to Atlanta right before we went into production and took a lot of pictures and looked around. Uh, Steve, join us. 
Well, the I'm not quite sure where to jump in. The thing about the Leo Frank case is it's so multifaceted and uh, hence my long book on it. But the, um, you know, Frank was cerebral. He lived close inside his mind. He had trouble reaching out to people. I've learned a few things after the publication of my book. And one of them was that he read the Stoic poet Epictetus, and uh, he kept a very close counsel. Now, in the Southern culture, which is so garrulous and uh, verbal, Leo Frank was perceived as being quite strange. There's also here uh, a sexual mystery that I don't think we'll ever know the answer to. The National Pencil Company was a tinderbox, a workforce largely of teenagers, most of them girls. And here was Leo Frank, not yet 30, with all these flirtatious young women working in his factory. And both at the coroner's inquest and at the trial, many of them testified as to his bad character, to what today would be called sexual harassment. And uh, Frank's lawyers, for reasons having to do with the law, didn't answer these charges in open court. So you had not only this tinderbox, but you had accusations of sexual malfeasance. And, you know, the kids who worked in that factory were mostly country kids. Their parents had come into Atlanta seeking a better future. The economics were tough. So the kids ended up working in factories, working 55, 60 hours a week. There were no child labor laws in Atlanta. So while these tensions were not often articulated, they were deeply uh, subliminally felt among the working class in Atlanta. And when Mary Fagan is found dead at the National Pencil Factory, murdered on Confederate Memorial Day, when the parade uh, which from which Alfred takes his title occurred, it was as if um, these deep-seated anxieties and wounds were just all flushed into the open, and suddenly Atlanta, uh, both Atlanta Jews and uh, Atlanta Gentiles, and ultimately the Atlanta Black community gets caught up in this as well, are living out all of their most deep-seated fears, and it, it's all being played on the stage of the Fulton County Courthouse, ultimately, uh, where Frank has tried for Mary Fagan's murder. So the the one of the reasons I was so attracted to the Frank case, and I think Alfred was as well, is that these things we usually repress all came out into the hideous open and could could be, if you're writing about them, you can stand back and try to try to understand what what they meant. Uh, Alvin, um, let's talk about Frank. Uh, not only is the outsider who would would uh, draw suspicion by virtue that he's a New Yorker, which may be just as bad as being a Jew, um, but when he's interrogated by the police, and Steve writes about this, um, he's not, he's not a, he's a very reticent kind of internalized guy. So his interview is uh, awkward. It maybe casts further suspicion on him. But what occurs to me, uh, Alvin, is that while he may uniquely have been an introverted person, um, I, su I suspect it wasn't unusual for other people in the Jewish community in dealing with outsiders uh, to uh, feel constrained in how they talked about themselves, about their lives. That's, uh, that's probably true. It was... Uh... You know, that was a time when um, our late Rabbi Marx, who was uh, David Marx, was a rabbi, you know, during this period, actually from 1895 to uh, 1946, uh, and was very involved in trying to protect Frank and do the best he can. And even went to uh, New York for the burial, uh, a service of uh, Leo Frank with a company of Lucille there. But it was, it was, you know, we were particularly the temple uh, who stressed that we were German uh, Jews, very cultured and uh, very much wanted to assimilate. And that was put forth very strongly with Rabbi Marx at that time. And, and of course, even way, uh, after the, the Leo Frank case, um, it was... The, you know, you mentioned the New York thing. 
uh, the fact that he was in New York. Within the last uh, six months, a very, very dear, close friend of ours, who would not, just absolute, a, a non-Jewish lady, was in our home when we were visiting. And she was talking about her trouble uh, 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 that her daughter was having with some merchants who were from, and she looked at us and she said, who were from New York. And then she quickly said, no offense. No offense. <laughs> That's not, it brings tears to my eyes that in 19, in 2023, she still got to say no offense because New York to her meant certain kind of Jew. And so you, you take that and take it back to the time of Leo Frank, and it just explodes that yeah. the, the fabric uh, and the, the sparks of the Frank case that are still alive uh, today. Well, I just jump in to say to counterbalance that um, the phrase I often heard used about Atlanta's Jewish community in 1913 and its relationship to Atlanta was that Atlanta was a five o'clock town and that during daylight hours, Atlanta's German Jews who were partners in the biggest law firms and industrialists and really leading lights of the economy and the culture could go and be anything they chose to be. And the assimilation was powerful. In fact, Rabbi Marx uh, was probably the most assimilated-minded figure in that community and the first American-born rabbi at the temple. So there was a feeling among Atlanta Jews that they were completely accepted, uh, which I think is why the Frank case was so shocking, because when Frank was lynched, Atlanta Jews had to question everything about their assumptions about the city that they loved and that they thought loved them. I got to get to a break, but I can't do it without pointing out that when you talk about the assimilated German Jews at the temple, our guest Alfred Urey's play last night at of Ballyhoo, which was uh, commissioned by the Alliance Theater for the Cultural Olympics and which went on to win Alfred a Tony Award when it moved to Broadway is about just that, the acculturation, the assimilation of German uh, Jews. So, uh, Alfred, you captured the pulse of the community in that play as well. We're going to take a break back in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Tony Award winner, Academy Award winner, Alfred Urey, who just won the Tony, uh, whose show parade just won a Tony for Best Revival of a Musical, uh, Steve Oney, the author of the definitive book. Uh, it's a joke to talk about uh, Alfred saying he wished you'd written it quicker, Steve, because I think you spent about, oh, 19 years working on it and the dead show. 17 rise. to be accurate. And, um... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alvin Sugarman, yeah, was, Rabbi was... Emeritus. Alvin Sugarman, <laughs> Rabbi Emeritus of the Temple, uh, whose temple was the, whose synagogue was the heart of the Selig family, the Lucille Selig Frank family for so many years. And Jim Galloway. Jim, you have a question for Alfred, I think. Yeah, yeah. Just if we can broaden the conversation just a little bit. Alfred, I mean, your, your, your two best-known works now, and I'm going to leave out Mystic Pizza, and I'm sorry, but are, are, are driving, <laughs> Miss, driving Miss Daisy and, and Parade. And you, you wrote Driving Miss Daisy first. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it's the story of how a, an elderly Jewish woman realizes her connection with her, with her African-American chauffeur. Uh, it's built around the temp the, the bombing of the temple on October 12th, 1958. And then, but then you go to parade and you're sort of working backwards to that, which, which I find fascinating. 
that 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 in essence you're stepping back in time to 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 uh, more kind of go toward the insecurity of that relationship that you that you that you built in uh, driving Miss Daisy. Well, it, it's interesting, Jim. But that was that just all happened. But I, unlike Alvin, who was brought up at the same time I was, I was brought up with Christmas trees and Easter egg hunts. I never went to a bar mitzvah. I went to one seder, and it was like going to something in Afghanistan or something. I mean, nothing. <laughs> uh, I, I had my Jewish face, and nobody ever said we weren't Jewish. We just, we were just kind of. I think those German Jews back then were just pretending they were above all of that stuff. And what happened to Leo Frank was to one of their own, and shocking. And they were just Jews like everybody else, and they couldn't deal with it. And that I've always liked to write about the gray part of life, not the black and the white. And uh, there's such a whole gray thing about the way that I was raised as a Jew, but not a Jew, that I'm still writing about. Uh, by the way, we will not dismiss Mystic Pizza because it's the movie <laughs> that put a young Julia Roberts on the map. Alfred wrote the screenplay for that. Uh, Alvin, uh, we've talked about the fact that Lucille Selig Frank's family has been uh, deeply involved in the temple for generations. And it's interesting that in this new production of Parade, I saw the original production first back in 1998, I guess it was. Um, and um, there's a slight shift uh, because in this production, the director, Michael Arden, puts a lot of emphasis on Lucille Selig Frank and her uh, uh, defense of Leo. And I want to play again, because the music is so beautiful, I want to play a little bit of a song that she sings in trying to defend Leo as the charges against him are being pressed forward and as the trial is going to get underway in a, with an anti-Semitic frenzy around the courthouse. This is Michaela Diamond singing that song, You Don't Know This Man. When a man writes his mother every Sunday, pays his bills before they're due, works so hard to feed his family, there's your murderer for you. And you stand here spitting words that you know aren't true, then you don't know this man. I don't think you Alvin Sugarman, talk a bit about the Selig family. I, I know that some of the Seligs really don't like revisiting this story, but it is certainly a part of their legacy. Yeah, yeah actually, uh, I was privileged to, uh, to meet her, Lucille Frank, on more than several occasions. She lived uh, at the Howell House in her later years where my uh, aunt Rose Sugarman lived. Uh, and they were friends and uh, often going to visit my Aunt Rose. I would see her in the lobby of the building. Aunt Rose introduced me to her. She was an absolutely stunningly lovely lady, composed. And uh, it just, uh, you know, knowing what I knew, hearing as a child and, and meeting her, you know, uh, in person, even as a, a young teenage boy, meant, meant a great uh, deal to me. The Seeley family is is really the uh, part of the very fabric of uh, the temple. Served as uh, Steve has served as president of the temple, also as president of the Federation of Atlanta. Uh, uh, the Seeleys are, are really part of a major. We have a Seeley building. Uh, named after uh, Steve Seelig's uh, uh, parents, 
who donated uh, the major part of the funding for, uh, for the building. Uh, it's just, uh, you, you can't hardly see the temple without thinking of the ceilings of the ceilings without thinking of the temple. There's so much involved. Steve, let's move the actual story of Leo Frank uh, forward quite a bit. He is convicted of this murder. We should say that to this day, there are those, there are many who say that he was falsely convicted. And yet there are those who say it's unclear um, whether he in fact was guilty of this murder or not. But it's certainly true that his conviction came uh, again in in a courthouse, in a courtroom where anti-Semitic fever really was roiling what was happening inside the courtroom. So he's convicted, sentenced to death, and sent off to uh, prison. Um, Take us through a little bit of that story, please. Well, he's convicted in 1913, and starting in 1914, the case becomes a national cause celeb when Rabbi Marx goes to New York and appeals to Adolf Ox, the publisher and owner of the New York Times, and several other powerful New York and Chicago Jews, tells them there's been a miscarriage of justice down south. And the New York Times does something it had never done before and is really done again. It gets involved in advocacy journalism, advocating for Leo Frank's innocence. And it's joined in this fight by several Atlanta newspapers, most especially the Atlanta Journal, which was then independent afternoon newspaper. And the combined weight of the lobbying for Leo Frank so angered some Georgians, particularly Tom Watson, uh, the agrarian rebel, the former congressman uh, from outside of Augusta, that uh, Watson, through the his own paper, the Jeffersonian, organizes a counter campaign against Leo Frank. And soon the sides are deeply and divisively drawn, and you can't have an open-minded conversation about the Leo Frank case in Atlanta or really any place else in the United States, which is why the Leo Frank case compares so much to our current time. Um, it, it drove people apart. It polarized people. And uh, flash forward, uh, Leo Frank loses all of his appeals, both in the state court and in the United States Supreme Court. And at the 11th hour, John Slayton, the governor of Georgia, the case comes before him in an act, uh, application for executive clemency. He grants Frank um, clemency, and Frank is sent down to Milledgeville, where the state prison was at the time. And that's where Frank was abducted in August of 1915, and then driven on a circuitous route, uh, skirting Atlanta far to the east of Atlanta, up to Marietta, and lynched at dawn the next day. And for a Current audience, uh, that feat may sound unremarkable. People get in their cars and drive from Milledgeville to Marietta every day. But in 1915, with Model Ts on largely unpaved roads at night, it was a feat of incredible daring do and took all kinds of leverage and juice to pull out, pull off, excuse me. And Frank was lynched. And uh, the lynching gave rise ultimately to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan and it galvanized the Anti-Defamation League. So the implicit tensions of uh, 1914 and 15 become grotesque and explicit uh, with the lynching of Leo Frank. And that, that, is, uh, that brought it to an end and that paralyzed Atlanta's Jewish community. Elvin? Yeah, you know, the, um, the lynching itself, unspeakable. But the fact that they cut off pieces of rope and were selling them like $5 an inch at five points in downtown Atlanta, there were picture postcards made of, of him swinging from the tree hanging. Uh, it's, it's incomprehensible, and yet it happened. Uh, it happened. And even, you know, again, with the residents and one of our candidates for lieutenant governor who was elected, Peter Sack Gear, uh, uh, was running in 1962, I think. I was at the Tower Theater downtown going on into a movie with my late father, and they were passing out campaign, campaign literature. And on the campaign, this is 1962, 
one of the lines read, remember the blood of Mary Faith. It's just, again, incomprehensible, yet it's real. The horror of the case and how it just bled through the generations. Alfred? The first item of previews for this current production parade was in February of this year, and we were picketed by neo-Nazis who held up sheets with stuff written on it said, do not support this production. Leo Frank was a pedo. And the ironic thing was, it looked like some of the props in our show with these signs that look kind of the same. And this was now. And uh, ironically, the actors were kind of upset by this. But having grown up in Atlanta, I I, I th I thought, well, yeah, this is going to happen. Uh, it's not dead. It's not dead at all. Uh, Jim, before we have to get to a break, uh, I think it's important to bring this up to, to today. Um, this past session of the Georgia General Assembly, there was a measure introduced to define anti-Semitism so that anti-Semitism could be included as part of the hate crimes law that this uh, legislature passed a couple of sessions ago. And although it passed in the House overwhelmingly, the Senate refused to act on a definition of anti-Semitism. Now, I'm not suggesting that the senators themselves are anti-Semitic, but you do have to wonder why they felt a need to back away from defining what it means. And uh, f following that, uh, Governor Brian Kemp uh, went to Israel and uh, and had his ear bent by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. So so that's it'll, right. It, it, it'll it, it will be interesting uh, to see what happens uh, when they reconvene in January. And just to to, to add, add to to what Alfred had just said, look, you can uh, 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 Mary Fagan is 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 buried. Uh, in, in the Confederate Memorial Cemetery, uh, uh, within within the Marietta city limits, you can still go to her grave. There will still be flowers there. There still will be coins placed in a little 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 dish there at the site. Uh, so so it is. It, I, I want to echo it. Echo this. The uh, the, the the Leo Frank uh, case is 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 very much with us still. I've got to get to a break, but. I don't think we should uh, uh, forget that regardless of the Leo Frank aspect of this story, the tragedy of Mary Fagan is very real. A 13-year-old girl murdered um, in the prime of her life, and we really can't uh, take anything away from the tragedy of that death. We're going to take a break and come back with a little more on Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Alfred Urey, the scene in which Leo Frank is lynched in your show Parade is incredibly moving. Uh, Steve, in a moment, I'll ask him about this, but I believe I'm correct that um, he was uh, relatively calm, apparently. He handed his wedding ring to the lynch, one of the lynchers, I think, and asked that it be returned to Lucille. And then he said, the Shema, let's listen to Ben Platt singing that prayer, but doing it in the same melody as um, the opening song of the show, which is about the Confederacy and the Lost Cause. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuso Leolam Vaed. 
very quickly, Rabbi, tell us what that uh, prayer is about and why he would say it at his death. Yeah, it's the most important prayer in all of Judaism. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's affirming the existence of God, and it's said at one's uh, deathbed. And it is it is the, the unifying prayer uh, whenever we gather in the synagogue, that whether it's the Shabbat that's coming this evening all over the world, every Jew is saying the, the Shema that unites us in life and in, and in death. We, we say the prayer as we light our Friday night Shabbos candles in this household. Steve, uh, Jim mentioned it earlier. You uncovered the names of many members of the lynch mob and, and it, was, it is startling to realize how many of them were very prominent figures in the state of Georgia beyond just Marietta. Well, I made a full court press to try to determine the identities of the men who lynched Leo Frank. Uh, I felt that uh, if I didn't do it now, the possibility of doing so would be lost to us. And I met a lot of people who I termed members of the linking generation, mostly the sons and daughters of the principals in the lynching. And I also talked to a number of people who were actually at the lynch site and saw Leo Frank's body hanging there. Uh, they were 17, 18-year-old kids who rode their bicycles out to the site. But there were seven or eight powerful Mariettans who decided they were going to execute Leo Frank uh, very quickly after Governor Slayton commuted the sentence to life imprisonment. And they then recruited about 25 Mariettans to conduct this well-planned military raid on the state prison and abduct Frank. And the way I got into this was everything from, um, I spent a lot of time with the children of a lynch party member named Lawrence Haney, one of whom had kept a list of all the lynch party members, and she went over it chapter and verse with me and talked to me until I had somewhat memorized the lynch list. I also read all the society columns in the Atlanta newspapers back then, uh, and you wonder why. Well, in those days, the newspapers would uh, have small town correspondents who sent in news of notes of every gathering, every out of town guest. And so I read the Marietta correspondence coverage of all social life in Marietta and started to put together a list of uh, the connections among all the powerful families of Marietta. There were also only seven or eight cars used in the lynching. I went to the State Department, uh, the State Archives, got the Department of Motor Vehicles registrations of the cars registered in Cobb County at the time. This kind of work would be of no use today, but because uh, there are thousands and millions of cars, but then there were let, only several hundred cars. So I was Steve, able to let, let me. Who, I'm sorry. Um, I, I just want, we're running out of time, and I do, Jim, think that we should point out there were a number of famous names, but probably the most famous, uh, the grandfather of uh, Marie Barnes, the wife of former Governor Roy Barnes, who has talked about it quite frequently and, and said how uh, sorry the family is for his involvement in the lynching. Well, the, the families were powerful. I, I, let me jump in. The, power, the, the families were powerful. One of the lynch party organizers was a guy named um, John Tucker Dorsey. And John Tucker Dorsey's son, Jasper, was the CEO of Southern Bell Telephone for most of the 1970s and into the early 80s. And where I went to college, the University of Georgia, Jasper was the head of the Alumni Association for UGA. And Jasper uh, was a roommate with Elliot Goldstein when they were in college at UGA. So these were all big time families in Marietta that, uh, and they had to be because how do you get someone out of a state prison? You can't just waltz in and do it. You have to have juice to do it. Let, let's point out one other quick fact before we have to uh, leave, because we're really down to it. Uh, the governor of Georgia, Governor Slayton, after commuting the sentence of death, was literally run out of Georgia when a mob descended upon his home 
He had to leave the state with his wife in a hurry, and his political career, for all intents and purposes, was dead, despite the fact many people thought he was a rising star uh, in uh, politics in Georgia. Um, we are just about out of time. Um, as we leave, Natalie, let's underneath the final minutes play a little bit. Alfred, Jason Robert Brown wrote a song. It's not the finale, but it really is, I think, one of the great songs in American musicals today. It's the duet between Lucille and Leo Frank in prison in their last hours before he is eventually lynched. It's called All the Wasted Time. And Natalie, if we can start playing it underneath a little bit so that we can hear it um, as I thank our remarkable panel for today's show. Alfred Urie again, congratulations. It was such a treat, such an honor to have you on. Thanks for being here, Alfred. Loved being with you guys. Uh, thank thank you, you so much. Uh, Rabbi Alvin Sugarman, a great friend of mine, and I'm so happy you were here. Steve Oney, you as well. Good luck. I know you got a new book coming soon. And Jim Galloway, of course, I was glad you were part of the show. As we leave you, we're taking Monday off. We'll be back on Tuesday. Here is Ben Platt and Michaela Diamond, all the wasted time. Take care. Stay healthy. Be kind to everyone. Hey!